1: You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. Welcome
0: to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. This episode's coming out on May 1st. Happy May Day! Happy May Day! Uh, As a holiday, May Day has come to have two different and sometimes overlapping meanings. There's the one going back to medieval Europe. That's the holiday with the celebration of the return of spring full of greenery and maypoles and general merriment. And of course that has its roots in much earlier springtime and fertility festivities. Then in 1889, socialist and communist organizations also selected May 1st as International Workers' Day, also known as Labor Day. And over the next few decades, May Day increasingly took on those connotations. So then, in 1955, Pope Pius XII responded by naming May 1st also as the Feast of St. Joseph the Worker. So keeping that whole connotation connected to labor and also emphasizing a religious element over the connections to communism and socialism, sometimes people look back in history and describe one particular May Day in 1517 as being a really early example of both of these meetings at the same time thanks to a riot that was primarily carried out by working people, those being apprentices and journeymen and uh, other people in similar circumstances. But while this was an uprising of laborers, this incident, which is called the Evil May Day or Ill May Day Riot, was also rooted in immigration and xenophobia in Tudor London. Most of the
0: workers who took part in this riot were apprenticed in London's guild system. In the 16th century, guilds formed the economic and political backbone of life in London. These organizations had started to form pretty organically in the 10th and 11th centuries as more people moved into towns. People who worked in the same trade tended to live near each other, both supporting and learning from one another and keeping an eye on the competition.
1: So these informal groups of working people gradually coalesced into more formal associations. Those evolved into guilds. Because some of the guilds started wearing livery to distinguish themselves from one another, they're also called livery companies. And livery companies still exist today, but in sort of a slightly different uh, form than back in the medieval period. Guilds trained new members through apprenticeships, and they set standards for their work and for the behavior of all their members, including things meant to protect all their trade secrets. Failure to live up to these standards could lead to a range of punishments, including physical punishments and fines, having your tools confiscated, or being completely expelled from the Guild.
0: Being expelled from the Guild was extremely serious. In London, to practice a trade, you had to have the freedom of the city. And that freedom was conferred by being in a guild. And the guilds effectively had a monopoly on their specific trade. So if you weren't in a guild anymore, you almost certainly lost your livelihood. Conversely, during their heyday, being in a guild also offered a person some protection, including being cared for in their later years.
1: When we were on our tour last year and I got to go to the Bookbinders Museum, (laughs) the docent who was taking me on a guided tour of it described the Bookbinders Guild as being like, part professional organization, part organized crime. (laughs) A lot of stuff that would not necessarily fly today in a professional organization. And then these guilds in London came to wield huge political power as well. By 1515, there were 48 of them, and they had been arranged into a hierarchy based in the, on their wealth and their importance. This hierarchy was developed by London's aldermen to try to put a stop to ongoing rivalries and jockeying for power among the guilds. There was a lot of fighting and disagreement among them all, and, and creating this hierarchy was meant to put a stop to that. About 20 years after the events we're talking about today, the 12 highest-ranking guilds became known as the 12 great companies, and they had even more political power than all of the others.
0: The guilds essentially governed their members through strict enforcement of their own rules and policies, and they were also a major part of governing the city itself. London's free men elected aldermen from each of the city's wards. And the livery companies also elected the Lord Mayor, who was second only to the monarch in the context of the city's
1: affairs. So by the 16th century, the guilds were essentially running the city government of London, although not everyone was in a guild by any stretch, and guilds weren't the only source of social or political power. For example, most guilds didn't admit women, so women weren't really part of this process, although women frequently worked with their husbands or their male relatives who were guild members. And then there was also this overlapping system of parishes with parish priests and other clergy who were also a critical part of the social framework and sort of keeping the standards of society going.
0: There were also a couple of huge exceptions to the guild's political power in London. One was the monarch. Even though London was self-governing, the monarch still had the power to make decisions that affected the city or to overrule decisions that were made by the city government or the individual guilds.
1: The other exception, which connected back to the monarch, was the existence of liberties. Starting in the medieval period, monarchs had designated various entities as liberties, and then a liberty existed outside the city's jurisdiction. In some cases, it wasn't really even under the jurisdiction of the monarch, Most of these liberties were affiliated with the church, and so they were under ecclesiastical control, but some were more affiliated with a specific lord and under his control.
0: Since liberties were essentially their own jurisdiction, they got to set their own rules about who could live there, what trades they could practice, and how they could run their businesses. And monasteries, churches, nobles, and anyone else with status as a liberty had plenty of incentives to basically
1: create their own market. An obvious incentive was money. If a liberty was effectively establishing its own marketplace that was free from the restrictions of the city and the guilds, that could be really lucrative. And then another incentive was the types of goods that were available. Artisans from elsewhere in Europe were often making goods or using materials and techniques that weren't otherwise available in England. So, If a liberty was giving sanctuary to foreign artisans, it was getting access to different types of goods and different styles of workmanship, many of which were in very high demand from the country's wealthiest residents.
0: And the monarch had plenty of incentive to not just allow this, but to encourage it. One of the monarch's sources of income was customs duties from trade with other countries. So it was in the monarch's financial interest to encourage these trading relationships. Plus, the monarch and the nobility really liked luxury goods like silk and spices that just weren't made locally in England. Cutting back on imports from other countries meant losing
1: access to these things. They were not excited about that idea at all. So this interconnected world of guilds and liberties and the monarchy bred a lot of frustration and resentment among working people in 16th century London. By then, London had a population of roughly 50,000 people, although I saw some estimates as high as 100,000 when I was working on this. Between 1,000 and 1,500 of them, or between 2 and 3%, were immigrants, or in the language of the time, aliens or strangers.
0: These immigrants had come to London for a variety of reasons and were all across the economic spectrum. Some were regular artisans and craftspeople who were fleeing war or other violence. London was also becoming wealthier, which made it more attractive to people who thought they might have a better life in another country. The most prosperous immigrants were often in England at the invitation of the king or were acting as representative of a wealthy family or business headquartered somewhere else in Europe.
1: Speaking in very broad strokes, so we're talking about trends here and not every individual immigrant. Flemish and Dutch immigrants were often working in cloth-related industries, especially related to fine wool and weaving. French and German immigrants included artisans along with wealthier merchants. Italian immigrants were often associated with banking. London's Lombard Street, with all of its banks and merchant houses, was named for the Lombardy region of northern Italy, where all of those bankers and merchants were from, or most of them were from. There was also a small community of Africans and people of African descent, many of whom were working as musicians or other entertainers, although the riot that we're talking about today does not seem to have been focused on them at all. And of course, among all of these nationalities, there were also people who weren't working any particular craft or trade. There were diplomats and courtiers and other wealthier people.
0: By the 15-teens, many English workers thought there were too many strangers in London, that the city was literally being overrun, and English artisans and craftspeople were being crowded out by foreign competition. This perception was exacerbated by the fact that immigrants tended to be clustered into very specific parts of the city, into sanctuaries or the estates of wealthy people from their native country. They also made up a large portion of several industries. For example, about
1: half of London's tanners and coopers were immigrants. So people were making a lot of the same arguments that you hear today against immigration, but At the same time, a much bigger source of competition for jobs was migration from within England, not from elsewhere. These were from rural areas and smaller towns into London. Rural poverty was a huge problem due to agricultural changes, including the enclosure movement. And this led people to move into cities, especially into London, trying to find work. About 5% of England's population lived in London, but about 15% of England's population lived in London at some point in their lives. So while unemployment was a real problem, immigrants were really not the cause of this problem.
0: And the apprentices were particularly disgruntled. At this point in English history, apprenticeships were prestigious, but they were also very difficult. Most apprentices were in their teens, and their lives were strictly managed by the master of the guild. So these young men, whose lives were very tightly controlled, thought they were preparing for work in an economy that was inherently stacked against them.
1: In April of 1516, flyers were posted all around London about how strangers in the wool trade were getting rich off the king's favor while English people suffered. King Henry VIII ordered the handwriting of every apprentice to be compared to these notices to try to figure out who had done it. This
0: came to a head just over a year later, and we're going to talk about that after we first have a little sponsor break. privileges, and start earning points toward your next day. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com, where travels come true.
2: The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rival, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL Schedule Release, presented by Verizon, coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more.
1: In the spring of 1517, English craftsmen living in London were fed up. In the words of chronicler Edward Hall, quote, The multitude of strangers was so great about London that the poor English artificers could scarce get any living. And most of all, the strangers were so proud that they disdained, mocked, and oppressed the Englishmen, which was the beginning of the grudge.
0: Two particular foreigners had drawn a lot of the city's ire. One was John Mauti of France, who was a royal secretary. He maintained an estate called Greengate, where his position allowed him to offer sanctuary to other people from France. And it was commonly believed that the immigrants at Greengate included lots of pickpockets and unlicensed wool carters. It's not clear at all how much of this was accurate and how much was just rumor about this prominent French man and the people that he was sheltering but the people of London definitely believed it and took it as a sign of everything that was wrong with immigrants.
1: The other was Italian merchant Francesco DiBardi. Barti imported fine fabrics into England and he exported English wool back to Italy. One of his customers was King Henry VIII himself, and the king was fond enough of Barti that he granted him a license to import his fabric without having to pay customs on it, which people thought was really unfair.
0: On top of that, he had, according to accounts of the time, enticed an Englishman's wife to come and live with him and to bring all of the household's gold and silver with her. Her husband had filed a lawsuit against Debarty, leading Debarty to insult him in court before filing a suit of his own. Debarty's suit alleged that the woman's husband owed him money for the cost of her lodging, Again, it's not totally clear how much of this was true, but once again, people believed it. And it speaks to the whole idea that immigrants were disdaining and mocking the English.
1: Yeah, a lot of the things that people were upset about in terms of specific foreigners in London sounds like tabloid fodder that (laughs) may or may not have been true, but people were definitely riled up about it. So printing was still a fairly new innovation in England in 1517. William Caxton is believed to be the person who introduced movable type into England about 40 years before that, a little less than 40 years. So printing still wasn't widely available for everyday use. And that's why those bills that were posted around town in 1516 had been handwritten. Plus, the vast majority of people couldn't read. So if somebody had a message to get out... They weren't printing flyers and and widely distributing them, as would happen later on in history. The best way to do it was really to speak somewhere or to get somebody else, preferably somebody who had an audience, to do it for them. So one common tactic was to get members of the clergy to speak from the pulpit about the issue.
0: A broker called John Lincoln was one of the people trying to convince the English clergy to speak out against immigrants. First, he approached a man named Dr. Standish, who was scheduled to give an Easter sermon in 1517. Standish, however, had the favor of many members of the aristocracy who were wealthier and more powerful and not so opposed to England's immigrant population. So Standish refused.
1: He might have also thought this was a bad idea. So Lincoln went to another man, Dr. Bell, sometimes spelled Dr. Beale, and he was canon at St. Mary without bishopsgate. And this was more commonly known as St. Mary's Spittle because of a hospital there. So Dr. Bell was to give a public sermon at St. Mary's Spittle on April 14th, and that was the Tuesday of Easter week. And unlike Dr. Standish, Dr. Bell was persuaded to make his sermon that day on the subject of England's immigrant population.
0: On the 14th, Dr. Bell began his sermon by reading a bill or petition that someone else, presumably Lincoln, had written. It read, quote, "'To all you, the worshipful lords and masters of this city, that will take compassion over the poor people your neighbors,' And also of the great importable hurts, losses, and hindrances, whereof preceding the extreme poverty to all the king's subjects that inhabit within this city and suburbs of the same. For so it is that the aliens and strangers eat the bread from the poor fatherless children, and take the living from all the artificers, and the intercourse from all merchants, whereby poverty is so much increased that every man bewaileth the misery of other, for craftsmen be brought to beggary, and merchants to neediness.
1: And then Bell's own sermon began, quote, This land was given to Englishmen, and as birds would defend their nests, so ought Englishmen to cherish and defend themselves, and to hurt and grieve aliens for the common weal.
0: He went on to say that, quote, By God's law, it was lawful to fight for their country. And ever, he subtly moved the people to rebel against the strangers and break the king's peace.
1: About a week after this very inflammatory sermon, word started to spread that the much-hated Francesco Barti had once again been mocking English people, and this time boasting that he could treat the mayor's wife the same way that he had the other English woman we talked about earlier in the story.
0: Then on April 28th, a group of apprentices attacked several foreigners and threw them into a canal. Those apprentices were arrested and sent to Newgate Prison rumors started to spread that there would be a general uprising of apprentices against foreigners on the May Day holiday, which was, in 1517, a public holiday celebrated with feasting, jousting, and plays featuring Robin Hood.
1: This was fairly early in the reign of King Henry VIII. He had ascended to the throne in 1509, and in 1517 he was 25 years old, He had been spending most of his time as monarch traveling from one of his estates to the next feasting and carousing while leaving most of the actual ruling to his advisors. At first, these had generally been advisors to his late father. But by the time the events we are talking about today rolled around, Cardinal Thomas Wolsey, Archbishop of York and Lord Chancellor of England, had become one of the most powerful men in the country and the sort of top guy of Henry VIII. Wolsey
0: heard about the rumored uprising and summoned the Lord Mayor of London and the city's aldermen on April 29th. They talked over several options for keeping order, including stationing members of the city watch around the parts of the city that seemed to be the most at risk. But calling out the watch seemed like it might incite violence rather than deter it. So they ultimately decided on a curfew to begin at 9 p.m. on the 29th and end at 7 a.m. on May Day. They made this decision, though, at about 8.30 p.m. on the 29th. Otherwise, neither Woolsey, the Lord Mayor, or anyone else really made many preparations for preventing or responding to this rumored uprising.
1: Yeah, they basically called for a curfew with about half an hour notice and no good way to <laughs> spread the word. What were you guys talking about before that? I mean, it's a great question. Uh Alderman John Mondy returned to his ward after this meeting and found some apprentices in the street playing at fencing. He told them to get inside, and they refused and turned on him, which sparked several hours of violence. Most of the participants were apprentices or journeymen. Some were watermen who worked on London's waterways. A few women were involved as well, along with a few members of the clergy. First,
0: the rioters descended on Newgate Prison to free the men who had been jailed for attacking foreigners the day before. And then they started moving through London, attacking and looting foreign-owned businesses and destroying their wares. Much of the riot was focused on Cheapside, which was home to numerous markets and businesses. Its name comes from an old English word, which is spelled C-E-A-P-A-N, and it meant to buy. And many of its streets are named for the things that you could buy there. And immigrants' homes were attacked as well, including the homes of Francisco de Barty and John Mauti.
1: Sir Thomas More, author of Utopia, was one of London's undersheriffs at this point, and he confronted the crowd outside of St. Martin's Le Grand, which was a Liberty sheltering a whole lot of immigrants. He tried to encourage them to disperse. At first it seemed like he might be successful, but then the residents of the Liberty started fighting back against this assembled crowd, throwing things like stones and hot water at them. That reignited the violence. The crowd
0: also attacked an area in Aldgate that was home to a number of foreign shoemakers and their shops. They broke into the stores and they threw the shoes and boots out into the street.
1: While the riot was going on, the official response was basically non-existent. Sir Richard Chumley, Lieutenant of the Tower, apparently fired some artillery into the city, something that he was heavily criticized for doing, but which doesn't seem to have seriously injured or killed anyone. Otherwise, not much effort was made to stop the violence or to protect people and property.
0: About 1,000 people participated in this rioting, which finally wound down at about 3 a.m., Then at about 5 a.m., the Duke of Norfolk dispatched more than 1,000 armed retainers to restore order. Even though the violence had pretty much petered out by this point, the Duke and his men took most of the credit for it.
1: Yeah, especially in people's letters back home. Like, if you're an Italian merchant representing your, your Italian merchant house, you're writing your letter back to the home office. Like, there was like, oh, and then... Ah, uh, this duke came, totally put everything back in order, to save the day. Henry VIII was furious about how all this was handled, so we will get to the aftermath and his response after another quick sponsor break.
0: privileges and start earning points toward your next day. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com, where travels come true.
2: The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed.
1: The official response to the evil mayday was extreme, especially considering that there was no loss of life that we know of, and none mentioned in any accounts of the day. First, hundreds of people were arrested. Some of them were as young as 13 years old. 278 people were charged with treason.
0: The treason charge came because, in a general sense, the people who were attacked were under the protection of the king. But more specifically, it was considered treason if an English citizen attacked a citizen of any nation that had a treaty in place with England. King Henry VIII had signed a treaty with Charles, Prince of Spain, Archduke of Austria, and Duke of Burgundy and Brabant on February 3, 1516. A couple of years after these events, Charles would become Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. Uh, The Netherlands was part of the Spanish Habsburg Empire, so the English attack on Dutch immigrants fit this definition of treason.
1: A court of Oyer and Terminer was established to investigate this incident and to try the people who were accused. On May 4th, the alleged ringleaders were paraded through the streets of London with nooses around their necks, past gallows that had been built for the occasion. Thirteen people from that first group were convicted and hanged the next day. Six of them were also drawn and quartered, and their bodies were left hanging for days afterward.
0: John Lincoln was tried with a separate group on May 7th. He was hanged, but the others who were convicted were reprieved at the last minute at the gallows. Dr. Bell and other clergy who were involved were imprisoned in the Tower of London.
1: On May 11th, the mayor, the alderman, and the recorder of London went to the king to appeal for mercy for the now roughly 400 people who were jailed for taking part of this riot, including 11 women. The general public was way more sympathetic to the rioters than to the immigrants whose homes and businesses had been t- had been destroyed. So to... Most people in London, these hangings seemed truly extreme. But even though the king had already decided to pardon everyone else, he couldn't just let them all go because that would seem weak. So he took care of things with a huge
0: spectacle on May 22nd. Those 400 or so people were paraded through the streets, again with nooses around their necks to Westminster. Once they got there, they were made to beg for the king's forgiveness. The queen, Catherine of Aragon, was there and appealed to the king to grant them all clemency. In some accounts, the king's sisters, Margaret, Queen of Scotland, and Mary, Queen of France, were also part of this whole event, and the king then pardoned them all. They also heard a long address from Cardinal Wolsey, who told them, quote, to lead good lives and comply with the royal will, which was that strangers should be well-treated in this country.
1: Almost immediately after this, an epidemic of sweating sickness broke out in London, and then there was an outbreak of plague, but neither of these things overshadowed the May Day riot. It became the subject of ballads and plays, many of which made it sound like a bloodbath rather than a property riot.
0: In the decades after the riot, all the issues that had contributed to it continued to influence life in London. The city's population grew dramatically during the later Tudor era, especially as the Protestant Reformation and Catholic Counter-Reformation led to warfare and displacement elsewhere in Europe. The apprentice system started to break down in the 17th century, and a series of poor laws criminalized unemployment and poverty, which became rampant in the face of all of this social and economic change.
1: These changes were underway when the play The Book of Sir Thomas More was written, which was about 70 or 80 years after the riots. The play's authorship isn't entirely clear, but the depiction of More's speech at St. Martin's is widely attributed to William Shakespeare, and a copy of that speech is the only known script in Shakespeare's handwriting that exists today. This play probably wasn't performed during the Elizabethan era when it was written thanks to the influence of royal censor Edmund Tilney. And then in more recent years, the speech has been commonly used in the context of refugee and immigrant rights.
0: In the play, Moore's speech to the rioters goes this way. You'll put down strangers, kill them, cut their throats, possess their houses, and lead the majesty of law in Lyam. To slip him like a hound, alas, alas, say now the king, and he is clement if the offender mourn. Should so much come too short of your great trespass, as but to banish you, whither would you go? What country, by the nature of your error, should give you harbor, go you to France or Flanders, to any German province, Spain or Portugal, nay, anywhere that not adheres to England?' Why you must needs be strangers, would you be pleased to find a nation of such barbarous temper, that breaking out in hideous violence would not afford you an abode on earth? Wet their detested knives against your throats, spurn you like dogs, and like as if that god owed not nor made not you, not that the elements were not all appropriate to your comforts, but chartered unto them. What would you think to be used thus?" This is the stranger's case, and this, your mountainish inhumanity.
1: Uh, Rioting by apprentices also became something of a tradition in early modern London, and we are going to revisit that in our next Saturday classic. Do you have a riotous piece of listener mail? I do have some listener mail. It's, (laughs) It's not riotous. It is... Uh, just a a little bit of knowledge about something tangentially related to the podcast you pass around. This email is from Jax, and Jax says, Hi, Tracy and Holly. I'm a longtime listener, first-time writer, and I wanted to tell you that I really love your show. It's my constant companion on my work commute in and out of New York City every day, and I've learned so much I'm sure you're getting spammed right now by everyone who saw the commercial during Monday's Game of Thrones series premiere, but just in case it was missed, I'm writing to tell you about Gentleman Jack, a new HBO drama series about Anne Lister. As soon as I saw the name, I immediately squealed like a history fangirl and decided to write in. Anne's story is fascinating to me. A series of coded messages, forbidden love, and subverting social norms is a surefire intrigue if there ever was one. While I'm sure HBO will also take plenty of liberties, it's nice to see stories like this getting a chance to be told in the mainstream. The eight-part HBO drama is in... 1832, West Yorkshire, England, and starts with Anne's work to revitalize her inherited home of Shibden Hall. It premieres next Monday, April 22nd. I'll most certainly be adding this to my watch list. Thank you both for such a great podcast, and I hope you have a great time in Paris, despite the unfortunate events of yesterday's fire, which is utterly devastating. I was just there in the fall of 2018, and I teared up when I saw footage of the flames. Thank you again, Jax. Thank you for this email, Jax. I definitely did see the Ann Lister <laughs> uh, commercial while watching Game of Thrones. By the time today's episode comes out, it's going to be well beyond uh, April 22nd. So, back when I was researching the episode about Ann Lister, at that point, the show had been announced as something called Shibden Hall. And in my research, I had found sort of the announcement of, a, you know, new TV series about Ann Lister called Shibden Hall to go into production. And then I couldn't find anything else about Shibden Hall when it was time to actually, you know, record the episode. So I didn't really mention it, I don't think, in the episode itself. And it was because by that point it had been renamed Gentleman Jack. Um, So I was pleasantly surprised to learn that it wasn't one of those shows that sort of gets announced and then never quite makes it to people's TV screens. Since it is on HBO, I am imagining that it will be very adult- <laughs> Just in case you're thinking of checking it out. Uh, but I definitely am going to do that because I am excited about it. So thank you again, Jax, for sending this note so we could pass that on to other people who might be interested and don't watch Game of Thrones or <laughs> the other stuff on HBO where, where they're probably advertising this. Uh, if you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, or history podcast at howstuffworks.com. And we are also all over social media at Missed in History. That's where you'll find our Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. Uh, You can come to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com. You'll find the show notes for all the episodes Holly and I have worked on together. And the ones for today's episode, you can read the primary sources that we uh, read from and marvel at their ingenious spelling, because spelling was not remotely standardized at this point in English history. You can also subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
2: The wait is almost over.